This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Hopefully I will provide uh, a little bit or additional information on um, the way the rehabilitation or physiatrist approach to cerebral palsy. Um, I have no relevant financial disclosures. Some learning objectives are to really uh, describe and define the, uh, define cerebral palsy, uh, the, uh, the diagnosis, the classification schemas, um, some ideas about current physiatrist management, um, and then identify some management resources uh, that for children with cerebral palsy. Um, so, thing of definitions, so, uh, as Dr. Livingston discussed, cerebral palsy, or, um, um, cerebral palsy is the most common condition uh, in a in pediatric rehabilitation clinic. Uh, a case example um, that I describe here is a two-year-old uh, who comes in, you know, uh, noting frequent falls, their toe walking. Um, there's uh, um, uh, no uh, no history of any prenatal events or concerns. The um, postnatal course was uncomplicated, but in, yeah, perhaps the child saw a neurologist or perhaps the PCP, given the concerns, ordered um, advanced imaging and find that on MRI brain that it shows uh, periventricular leukomalacia, so an evidence of an early injury to the developing brain. Um, and the clinical exam seems consistent where there's lower extremity spasticity or uh, impaired motor uh, movement or coordination in the lower extremities, whereas the upper extremities uh, are without uh, are, are behaving normally. Um, and so this clinical picture is consistent with the diagnosis of cerebral palsy. And the definition I like to use is it's a group of permanent disorders of development of movement uh, and posture, causing active activity limitations that are attributed to non-progressive disturbances that occurred in the developing fetal brain. And so that's what was kind of shown in the initial case. Uh, the what's important to recognize is that uh, as people, as Dr. Livingston had su suggested, that it is although it's a non-progressive injury uh, that occurred to the immature brain, uh, that the clinical picture does, is not static and it does evolve over time and um, that you can see changes in function in these children um, as they go through growth periods and as they go through their, the, the years of childhood. Uh, MRIs may be helpful, but they don't always, uh, they're, they're not necessary for the diagnosis and they don't always show abnormality. Thinking about uh, early signs of cerebral palsy. So as I mentioned classically, the uh, cerebral palsy uh, is uh, diagnosed around the age of two, um, but er there can be evidence and signs even earlier. So things like poor feeding and growth, um, which may be due to the neuromuscular uh, hypertonicity that leads to um, higher energy needs, uh, paucity of movements or asymmetry of movements on one side of the body or the other, Early handedness also goes along with that, uh, you know, reaching for things, exploring its world on only child's world on only one side, uh, delayed developmental milestones, abnormal, abnormal tone, uh, precocious uh, um, development, such as, oh, the, the child was an early roller or uh, look how good my child stands because 
they have extensive um, extensor tone into their lower extremities. So they can prop up to stand really early, which um, um, may all be evidence that there is something uh, um, uh, abnormal to the developing CNS. The classification schema. Um, so there are, there are a few ways to describe uh, a child with cerebral palsy. Um, here I am, is a diagram of body regions. So hemiplegia describing uh, one side of the body that is affected, both the upper and lower extremity. Um, diplegia being um, the both lower extremities being affected. Quadriplegia, all four extremities. Monoplegia, just being one limb, uh, either the upper one upper or one lower uh, limb. Triplegia being three of the four limbs, and then pentaplegia, kind of describing um, both the appendicular skeleton as well as the axial axial skeleton being involved um, by spasticity or uh, um, or dystonia. You can also describe uh, the uh, a, a child with cerebral palsy by their movement pattern. Um, here you see four different um, movement patterns, spastic, dyskinetic, ataxic, and mixed. Um, those movement patterns also may correlate with um, the areas of the brain that are injured, where you see spastic being a, a, a cortical injury, dyskinetic having uh, an injury to, uh, or an abnormal development to the basal ganglia deep brain structure, ataxic um, having uh, injury or abnormal development of the cerebellum, and then a mixed apatoid movement pattern may have multiple areas of the brain being impacted. The majority of children with cerebral palsy are described uh, as spastic, um, um, over 80% of the cases. And then as Dr. Livingston spoke about as well, uh, you can, the, you, one very common use tool is the gross motor function classification system, which describes uh, children with cerebral palsy based on their level of function, um, where children with a GMFS, GMFCS level one, um, being those who are most independent, most able to um, uh, do very, very pace of gait, um, very terrain, um, to be able to ambulate upstairs without um, the need of any assist those uh, GMFCS level five being the most dependent in their mobility. Um, and then levels two, three, and four uh, increasing in their, in their needs as, um, as sort of described in, in the pictures, uh, needing some assist by handrails, um, GMFCS level three being able to propel um, with modified assistance, either propel their own wheelchair, or use a reverse walker, GMFCS level four, more therapeutic walkers um, uh, and need more support in standing and walking to be successful, but may be able to um, uh, independently uh, utilize a um, power wheelchair. So management and interventions. Um, so the having rehab early uh, it makes a start, and, it is, and having the diagnosis of CP is not um, doesn't uh, leave the is not where we leave the patient or family. Uh, it's an ongoing discussion, and really focusing on identifying a plan for early intervention, um, empowering empowering parents and children to really maximize their um, function and um, functional goals, and to remain active. And successful through each stage of life, um, through through um, uh, community resources and um, at, with an interdisciplinary team. Uh, this diagram just kind of describes uh, how an interdisciplinary how interdisciplinary these um, what 
these children will benefit from, including um, orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons, physiatrists, the primary um, pediatrician or family medicine doctors, neurology, nutrition support, therapy services from PT, OT, and speech services, assistive technologies, social work, all um, blanketing uh, the child to um, maximize their functional output. When it comes to management um, and treatment ideals, um, the, the schema that uh, I, I commonly use is a sort of laddered tier or runged approach where I'm thinking about um, the least invasive intervention um, as uh, the least invasive intervention um, as much as possible before uh, advancing to more invasive interventions. And so we'll, we'll talk about each rung of this ladder in kind for starting with therapy modalities, bracing and equipment. And so therapy, um, one huge resource for California um, for children needing um, early intervention and therapies is the, um, well, for early intervention, the regional center, and then for which children can remain in up to the age of three. And then once they age out of early intervention services, um, the California Children's Services Medical Therapy Program can be very, um, very useful in um, providing PT and OT services um, to, for a child who um, has a diagnosis of cere cerebral palsy. Um, the, the medical therapy program works uh, closely with kids and families to make sure that they have um, uh, that they have support in school and in the outpatient environment um, to look, think about uh, bracing and equipment for these children and they partner really closely with uh, their um, referring providers and um, me as a physiatrist um, the, it's important to note that anyone can make a referral to CCS, whether that be um, a school teacher, a social worker, parents themselves, or um, providers. As I mentioned, um, cerebral palsy, uh, though a static injury uh, does, the clinical picture of it evolves over time. And so thinking about um, management principles uh, for infancy and early childhood, uh, really focusing on motor and cognitive development, acquisition of developmental skills, thinking about feeding and nutrition, as I mentioned, um, because of hypertonicity uh, uh, and for feeding, these kids can have nutri need nutritional support, um, spasticity management, contracture prevention, and um, uh, musculoskeletal deformity prevention, uh, which goes along with hip and spine screening, which Dr. Livingston spoke a bit about, and then adaptive equipment to, um, to support a child into um, uh, in, into their next steps of developmental skills. Some therapy modalities uh, that are utilized in this early childhood may be um, casting, which you can see um, uh, in the lower right-hand picture, um, compression, which is in the upper uh, left, and then um, uh, casting and constraint-induced movement. And so the ideas of um, compression and casting and constraint are all to um, limit the um, use of the, the unimpaired limb and really promote the um, use of the more impaired limb so that learned disuse doesn't set in for the child um, uh, as they are learning to do, uh, do new things and, and new tasks. Taping, uh, which is in the upper right, uh, 
helps to uh, promote movement patterns that are more normalized and that perhaps due to spasticity or tone, a child may have more difficulty with. Next, we'll talk about orthotics and bracing. So um, reasons for bracing include alignment to prevent the deformity, um, to manage contractures, uh, to uh, promote motion uh, in the typical um, uh, range of motion or typical movement patterns, and also to conserve energy, and uh, which all bring about improved function. And also bracing can help with pain control and to prevent limbs or joints from going through <clears throat> um, uh, range of motion or movement that is uh, unnatural to them. Bracing is named um, for the joints that are supported. So foot orthotics are uh, the first three in this, um, uh, this diagram, which are more of just in-shoe inserts. They are really just supporting maybe the heel or the arch support. Um, SMOs are super malleolar orthotics or this pink one on the end here and the red one, which are just go above the ankle um, can help prevent some rotation at the foot and ankle, um, continue to support the arch. Um, ankle foot orthotics or AFOs are, are really commonly used uh, to, and uh, can help manage with in-toeing um, and some rotation at the tibia or knee. Um, and uh, can uh, help to um, prevent things like crouch gait um, uh, and uh, improve the energy um, in a child walking pattern. KAFOs seen here are uh, named as they go and support the knee joint as well as the ankle foot and then HKFO um, going all the way up to the hip. In considering um, uh, equip our, our uh, managing and support for a child with cerebral palsy, um, we're also uh, working with vendors and therapists to think about um, equipment that a child will need through each stage of their life. Um, again, the, the medical therapy program through CCS, uh, the therapists uh, partner with the vendors and families to think to, to do in-home assessments to think about what the child needs in their home and as well as in school to support the next step of life. As kids get to age two, want to think about um, preparing for, if they're not already good standards, getting them into a standing frame, which this uh, little girl here has seen it to um, support to free up their hands, um, to uh, give them a different perspective of the world, um, being more upright, uh, which is appropriate at that age. Um, as they also want to think about bath and shower equipment and safety um, in, in different areas and arenas of life. As kids get from change to two to three and they outgrow standard strollers or commercial strollers, you want to think about adaptive seating, uh, whether that be by wheelchair or an adaptive stroller, which um, will, will add provi provided ongoing support and improve um, mobility uh, for longer distances um, for kids who are non-ambulatory. And then as kids get older and bigger, uh, also want to think about how to support caregivers and safely transition a child who um, may, may not be safe to stand pivot transfer. Um, and so this is a Hoyer lift in the top right corner. So all the while, as we continue to transition through each age group or a different each stage in life, we're still thinking about um, all of these uh, guiding principles that were going on before. Uh, thinking about equipment, bracing, 
testing, nutrition, spasticity management, but then also focusing on some particulars for school age, um, for kids with school age, for kids who have CP that are school age, including formal cognitive testing, um, IEP uh, in the school and talking to families about the importance of that as 50% of children with cerebral palsy have um, intellectual disability. And always, and, and still focusing on ways to keep them active, and um, and think about um, modalities for therapy. Those include um, vibrational therapy, which you can see here, which provide proprioceptive feedback, um, some have some benefit for bone for bone and joint health. Um, aqua therapy, which um, provides some weightlessness to allow for movement that a child might otherwise not be able to go. Um, um, do if they uh, weren't uh, in water. Hippotherapy, which provides support for posture, um, has some benefits for um, uh, pelvic and hip uh, development. And then again, thinking about adaptive sports to um, for cardiovascular fitness and um, just overall uh, social and engagement and quality of life. Um, Moving from school age to think about adolescents and young adults and then transitioning to adulthood, some, some particular um, uh, issues that may come up in that, that time period, still thinking about sports and activity, but also thinking about vocational training, um, whether the child uh, is going to continue through high school towards um, um, a diploma track or if they're going to transition to life skills thinking about impaired driver's evaluations uh, to help uh, with that independence and knowing what adaptive driving may, may look like for them. And uh, having conversations with family early and often about transition, including transition to new medical providers uh, to get to know them during the, um, during the kind of transition period, as well as getting to understand, well, how much support does the child need? Do they need to be in a conservatorship? Uh, do they need guardianship to help um, to maximize their support and independence, but also keep them safe? Next, we'll transition to um, thinking about uh, um, uh, specific interventions, including medications, um, in, injectables, and then um, move on to um, some surgical procedures that can be considered. Um, when it comes to uh, medications, specifically thinking about the management of spasticity for these children, um, medications uh, can be grouped and classified into um, the, the, their mechanism of action for, um, uh, for many providers um, treating spasticity. I think a go-to medication um, is baclofen, which is a GABA agonist. It has um, an impact on the central nervous system, both in the brain and spinal cord. Um, the, it's been used for over 40 years safely and uh, to manage spasticity. Um, similar medications such as benzodiazepines, in particular Valium, um, are, are also commonly used uh, as antispasmodics. Um, and then I think for, for my guiding principle, I usually start with baclofen and then if the tone isn't well con controlled or well managed with baclofen and I've gotten to a decent dose or a maxed out dose, um, think about changing um, or adding um, an adjunct uh, either with an alpha agonist like tizanidine or clonidine or um, something like dantrolene, um, which will which has a different mechanism of action and may 
uh, work synergistically. For most of these medications, um, what the, the side effect that I warn families about um, are um, drowsiness. Uh, and uh, for although most of these medications are well tolerated, um, that drowsiness may happen early, uh, as they get used to the medication. And then I have found um, that um, that fatigue or drowsiness wears off or wanes over time. Um, <coughs> next, we'll talk about uh, uh, chemo denervation. And for that, the intervention is um, botulinum toxin. There are two uh, main serotypes used um, for botulinum toxin injections, uh, that being uh, Botox and a uh, medication called Dysport. Um, botulinum toxin is an effective intervention uh, for kids who have spasticity and, um, uh, and hypertonicity in specific target muscles or target areas that you um, want to want to weaken. And the way Baclofen, or sorry, the way Botox works is that um, it's toxin, it binds to the uh, end of the nerve terminals and um, prevents the release of acetylcholine, the, the chemical messenger that tells muscles to um, contract. And so without that signal, um, it leads to muscle relaxation. The good thing about um, this medication is that it provides um, uh, sustained weakness, um, uh, and decrease in tone. Um, but the effect is that it usually onset is within one week of injection, uh, with maximum or with peak effect around, uh, two to three, three weeks, and then, um, find that the medication wanes somewhere around, um, three, uh, three months after the, in the initial injection. And so, one of the good things is that it provides um, um, several months of relief, but uh, you also have to come back um, to get repeat injections and you can't um, repeat those injections any more, any more frequent than every three months. So it has to be further than three months out before you do another um, Botox injection. Um, now moving on to neurolysis. <clears throat> So for neurolysis, uh, this is using um, alcohol injections as, uh, as the medication of, uh, for treatment. Here, um, the alcohol is instilled directly onto the, the nerve and um, uh, causes direct injury to the nerve, um, cause, uh, causing um, the, the nerve muscle connection to be severed in a semi-permanent manner. Um, this intervention is often used, um, for children who, uh, as you can see, um, have significant scissoring, um, and you target the target nerve is the obturator nerve for the, uh, which innervates the hip adductors. Um, what's nice about it is that there is an immediate onset. It is a low cost medication. And, um, because you're causing direct lysis or, um, severing of the nerve, um, the body has to go through uh, the entire peripheral nerve regrowth process, which um, takes a, a, um, somewhere around six months or longer um, to sprout and get get the muscle re-innervated. Um, the downside of this medication is that um, 
the because the, the instilling the alcohol causes um, pain, burning the nerves, um, a burning sensation. Uh, kids have have to be under sedation um, of some sort before uh, getting this treatment. And then if you get you want to target a pure motor nerve, which is why the obturator nerve um, for the hip adductors is a good target. Uh, if you get a sensory nerve um, or a sensory component to a nerve, you can have prolonged paresthesias or dysesthesias where the ch child has ongoing pain even after, um, even though the um, the initial injury is over. Um, for uh, the next intervention we'll talk about is uh, serial casting. And Dr. Livingston spoke a little bit about serial casting as well. Um, the it, serial casting combines two interventions um, at once. It um, has the bracing support and alignment feature as well as um, uh, using the chemo denervation from botulinum toxin injections. And so uh, the goal for serial casting is to, um, uh, in, in one common area of use is for children who are either toe walking or um, have ankle plantar flexion contractures. Um, and you want to improve the range of motion to get the child back um, flat with their heel down. Um, and so the way uh, we achieve this is by injecting, if it's um, depending either one limb or two limbs, uh, uh, the gastrox uh, with both botulinum toxin. And, and then uh, a week after that, um, the, the child will be casted. Um, in a comfortable range, but stretching the uh, Achilles tendon and the gastrosoleus complex. And um, they'll be left in that uh, for a week. At that week, uh, they'll, uh, at the end of that week, the cast will be cut, as you can see there. Um, the skin will make sure that the skin integrity is good. If the skin integrity is good, you uh, go repeat the casting process increasing um, the angle of the um, of the tibia to, uh, to um, foot and uh, repeat. So this one, this child went through one, two, three, four uh, series of casting to get to a, a more neutral position of the foot and ankle um, and, the, uh, and hopefully have, um, and then from the casting be put into AFOs to continue to support and prevent um, uh, the habit to go back to um, walking on the toes. So Dr. Livingston certainly um, gave you guys an in-depth um, uh, experience into orthopedic considerations for children with cerebral palsy. I will uh, just go to say that, um, as she mentioned, um, hip disorders are very common in cerebral palsy. She also mentioned how the incidence of uh, hip disorders increases as you increase in GMFCS level. So as their function declines, um, you see um, more musculoskeletal issues, especially around the hip. Um, and some important features uh, that she mentioned are pain, range of motion, and the importance of hip surveillance. Um, the 
uh, Australians um, came up with a schema um, for hip surveillance, which was adopted by the Academy of CP and Developmental Medicine, uh, which outlines uh, what type, based on the functional level, how to do the screening. Uh, the principles here are guided by um, when children are GMFCS1 uh, are, are very functional, the screening is less frequent and less common. Um, first, when you first encounter the child um, at the first meeting or at between two or three years of life, um, you should always get screening for every child with cerebral palsy of their hips and spine. Um, then uh, you can, um, sorry, that's not true. Um, for GMFCS1, you can just do physical exam um, and mon as, as monitoring. For two through, two through four, um, you should get two through five, sorry, you should get um, imaging um, upon initial presentation to you um, and then, uh, or between the ages of two and three. And then depending on physical exam findings, um, uh, such as range of motion, pain, increased uh, pelvic obliquity, uh, you may re you may need more frequent screening. Um, and from that screening, as Dr. Livingston said, depending on what the migration index um, or percentage is, um, making referrals to orthopedic surgery for potential interventions. Um, or uh, um, physiatry, uh, if Botox may be a potential staying intervention for um, um, management. And then finally, uh, looking at neurosurgery, neurosurgical interventions. So uh, as a physiatrist, I think about, or I, I try to help families and think, of, think about um, the potential interventions that may help their child with cerebral palsy and um, refer uh, uh, respectively. And so uh, there are two interventions um, in neurosurg neurosurgical interventions that uh, I'll commonly talk with families about. One is the intrathecal baclofen pump. And so uh, neurosurgery, uh, or so the intrathecal baclofen pump uh, is utilized um, for children with severe spasticity um, that either has failed um, more conservative therapy. Um, uh, and so you are using, uh, or you, you're using this intervention to improve uh, function and quality of life. Um, the, the, as you, from this diagram, you can see um, there's a pump that's placed intra uh, on the, in the fascia of the abdominal cavity. Um, and, and then there is a um, tubing that delivers uh, a catheter tube that delivers medicine into the um, uh, CSF uh, within the spinal canal um, that bathes the spinal canal and the CNS um, in uh, baclofen. So it's uh, the directly delivering baclofen to the, its target site. Um, you're not, uh, which... It's kind of um, cutting out the middleman of oral baclofen, which has to be absorbed through the blood and then get through the blood brain barrier. Um, and so for the baclofen pumps, uh, you're using much lower doses of the medication. And you, um, uh, with this programmer and this pump programmer, have the ability to adjust the amount of uh, medication that the child is getting 
um, offer boluses in times where their tone is um, increased um, and uh, and um, be you have a little more freedom um, to titrate and tightly um, hone in on a specific dosage for uh, of the medication. Um, neurosurgery uh, neurosurgeons um, place the pump and um, um, and do the neurosurgical procedure. Uh, a physiatrist or neurosurgeon um, manages the pump medication delivery and things like that. There can be complications with the pump, uh, complications with um, the tubing or catheter getting kinked. Um, so there's uh, all there can be concerns for withdrawal um, and overdose with this medication since it's being delivered directly to the uh, the CNS itself. Um, and then the final intervention, neurosurgical intervention that uh, physiatrists may have a conversation with uh, patients and families about is uh, something called the selective dorsal rhizotomy. Um, again, get, this is the highest rung of uh, interventions. It's uh, as close to um, a curative procedure, I guess, for spasticity. Um, it's a direct uh, neurosurgical intervention um, where the um, uh, neurosurgeons are looking or select out the dorsal roots um, from the spinal cord. The dorsal roots are the roots that um, contain sensory input um, coming from the body back to the spinal cord. The they um, the in the inappropriate uh, regulation of that sensory input is uh, that leads to motor output is what um, is at play for spasticity, and we found that. You, if you selectively cut um, uh, the sensory input um, that's coming in, you get um, better motor control without um, without uh, risking paralysis or paresis. Uh, the best candidates are children um, with. Uh, Perhaps diplegic cerebral palsy who are pretty good stand or who are pretty good walkers. They may be GMS, um, GMFCS one, two, or three, um, and they the target age range is somewhere between four and eleven years. You want the child to um, be able to engage with um, intensive uh, physical therapy uh, after going undergoing this procedure because. Um, we find that after um, dorsal roots, uh, after they've had a selective dorsal rhizotomy, that there is always a component of weakness that is um, hidden by the um, by the spasticity or tone. And so we want to make sure that uh, children are working towards regaining um, those skills stretch um, that we're um, working on a good or have a good stretching program um, to prevent contracture formation. Um, and work towards the, their prior functional abilities. Um, and then I'll leave you with um, the Binyak Children's Hospital group, UCSF group. We are across um, both sides of the bay um, at uh, uh, Binyak Children's Hospital Oakland, as well as SF and Mission Bay. Um, and then some, just some regional resources. Uh, so there's you know, inpatient and outpatient on the Peacock Center in particular over at Oakland. 
um, inpatient and outpatient for Mission Bay, um, Kaiser, Oakland, um, Valley Children's and UC Davis slash Shriners Hospital for inpatient and outpatient care as well. Um, thank you all for your time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.